You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is the fastest growing social media application for outdoor enthusiasts and it's designed by outdoor enthusiasts. If you want more information, visit Google Play Store and download the app or visit timetogowild.com. Let's get outside. It's time to go wild. Welcome to the For Love of the Land Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. Each week, we're interviewing guests from across America. They all have one thing in common. They all are tied to the land. So if you're like us and you love all things land, welcome home. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us for another For Love of the Land podcast right here. And uh, I'm your host, Adam Keith, as you already know. And uh, if you've listened to the other podcasts this week, you are aware that Matt Dye is actually out traveling this week for the holidays with his family in um, Virginia, and so therefore here I am. Um, kind of a it's kind of an interesting um, for the listeners. Last week Matt pretty well carried the load um, with the podcast and maybe and the week prior I was on last week, but uh, we covered a property um, that he actually worked. So I've been kind of out of it for the last couple of weeks because of um, the birth of my first daughter, uh, or first kid who happens to be a daughter. So this week, uh, Matt's kind of, uh, traveling and I have Chad filling in for Matt as we're covering for Loveland podcast, which as you know, um, I believe we're on the fourth one now and we have not touched on anything hunting, which is kind of the purpose of this podcast. Um, we've really just covered and talked about different stories. Uh, we had Tyler Ross, and we had Sean Clarkson, um, and this week is really kind of a uh, a conversation between Chad and I about our family farm. There's kind of an interesting history there, and uh, and kind of really that that's the purpose of this podcast is to talk about um, some of our our stories with farming, ranching, hunting, land, fishing, whatever it is, all ties back to the land. So Chad, thanks for joining us again. Um, you filled in a again. lot. You filled in a lot over this fall. Yeah. Um, that's yeah, kind of. Go ahead. Between all the stuff you guys have going on, it seems to. Well, seems to I work think we out get with me. Dumber and dumber because we just keep adding podcasts um, to the to the mix. Um, frankly, because uh, we really really enjoy the podcast, but also it's a great way for us to connect with people and uh, and share stories. And kind of, and hopefully inspire people to become landowners or, or get involved with public lands and all things land. So, um, 
you know, it's it's part of it. Uh, as we expand and do more things, there's going to be more and more guest appearances from people. And since you're so <laughs> intertwined with everything, you'll be around more and more. But, yeah, and, and that's the, I mean, the purpose of the podcast is to draw. You, you're trying to draw more people than just deer hunters. Yeah, and, and you're trying connect. to. I, well, to be able to give something to people that that aren't necessarily solely into deer hunting that they're yep. looking into that just love land as much as we do. That's right. Honestly. And so if you're a tra- driving a tractor or a combine, um, hopefully this will be a podcast that you want to listen to. Um, all right, given going ahead and jumping right in for the guys listening, there won't be um, due to uh, the holidays. This is going to be released on New Year's Day, so it uh, record during the week of Christmas. So a lot of uh, agents are traveling. A lot of people are um, kind of taking off for the holidays. So we decided, uh, actually, we didn't decide it until we tried to make contact with a few agents and weren't able to do so. So this week we are not interviewing any agents for their listings. We're just going to chalk it up as a holiday season, and uh, we'll be getting more agents on next week. But um, since everybody else is telling their story about land and how they got connected, um, Chad and I, brothers, uh, have an interesting story with our family farm. Um, so our family farm is located in southern Missouri in the Ozark Highlands, kind of the break of the Ozark Plateau and the Plateau region region of the Ozark Mountains. So I think when... Yeah, I mean, you- you honestly, I mean, you go north just a few miles and you're to where it's more of the pasture ground, kind of flatter. It's more rolling. And yep. then, I mean, right around the farm is when you really start to start to see more of the, the steeper slopes around the That's right. Around Bryant. Kind of the, the break of, um, for people listening out of Missouri or out of the area and other states, Missouri is kind of, um, it's a it's a unique state because of the fact that you go to the northern part and it is as flat and you go to the, the tall grass side of the prairie and then you gotta go into the central and you get into kind of the short grass prairie and I guess tall grass prairie is a lot of the western side of the state too, out towards Kansas. So but then you go to the south side, specifically the southwest side, and you get into the Ozark Mountains and a lot of terrain changes. Um, a lot of hills, a lot of steep, rocky, gnarly rock outcroppings, and and so it's an interesting state uh, when you speak I'm, from the terrain side. I, I'm sure you encounter it all the time too. But like through my work, I working in Arkansas, when I would tell people I'm from Missouri and deer hunting, they're like, "Oh, oh, you're from the land of the big bucks up there in crop country." And I'm like, "No, no, our place compares more to northern Arkansas than it does to northern Missouri." That's right. That's right, and so our our background, or a lot of uh, a lot of the people that settled Southern Missouri, um, really came from West Virginia and and Virginia and kind and North Carolina, kind of that Scotch Irish background. When they first came over on the boats, they settled in East Coast, and as settlement pushed west, uh, a lot of them came to um, came to Southern Missouri because of its uh, likeliness to uh to the same terrain as west virginia and and virginia because of the rocky terrain changes a lot of moonshining um but also just a lot of small hobby farms that 
you had some cows, you had some horses, you had goats and chickens, and sheep and pigs, um, but you, you kind of worked the ground the best you could. And it was really no different for our family, um, Scotch-Irish background that came to Southern Missouri um, because of its similarities with where they came from. Uh, being rocky ground, they knew how to farm it, or so they thought. <laughs> well, and it's, it's crazy to think of, like, ever since we've been growing up on that farm, it's it's been fescue pasture. Yes. I mean, the whole part of it. And then you hear even Dad telling stories of, oh, yeah, that the what they call the ball diamond. Well, they planted, they planted sorghum in that. Yeah. Or they planted this. And it's like, really? They I planted mean, sorghum there and then... And just off the family farm in the bottoms, they planted some corn. Um, and, of course, they planted the the, the sorghum and, the, of course, the, the sugar canes. Um, yeah, they did all kinds of stuff. Moonshining was popular. I said that earlier. Um, and, and whether it was legal or not, they still did it. We had ancestors that did it. Um, but our family actually came to southern Missouri in the late 1870s, early 1880s. Um, the first ancestor that moved in and actually settled the farm just just northwest of our family farm. And uh, Chad, you can chime in anytime I'm forgetting anything in the story. Uh, yeah. And so basically he settled just off the family farm, and um, that was our great-great-grandpa. And as he settled there, and then as they had kids, the sons moved and bought the farms adjoining. And so some sons went to the north and some um, went kind of to the northeast. Um, But our great-grandpa had a portion of the farm, kind of the original farm that we have now, um, during the 1890s and in 1890, or I guess the 1880s and in 1892, he sold that farm, a to the Stark brothers, um, and we actually have the abstract of title, um, which shows the kind of the ownership changing over the years. And in 1892, our great granddad sold um, the original part of what is now the family farm to Stark brothers for an interesting price, right, Chad? Yeah, um, you wouldn't. I would. I would like to be able to. To buy some land for that price. Yeah, no doubt. I would be harvesting and doing all kinds of cool things to, to buy land if you could buy it for the for the exchange that was taking place and kind of look back at great-grandpa and say, man, there must have been a lot of value to those. But uh, he actually sold the, and I think it was 80 acres, correct? I think I, I believe so. that's I'm what not it sure says. I'm... I wish I had it in front of me, but um, I don't. Um, it's at, I think it's at my grandma's house, but... Uh, he sold the original acreage for to the Stark brothers for a thousand fruit trees, um, and I think people would say what? But Stark brothers um, actually uh, are a fruit tree company, and you can Google them and and check it out. I think it is Stark Brothers Nurseries or Stark Brothers Fruit Trees. I think it's either Stark or Stark's brothers. Stark brothers, yeah. And uh, anyway. Um, I'm trying to Google it right now as as we're on the phone, but it's Stark Brothers or Stark Bros, um, S T A R K B R O S, and uh, they've been <laughs> they've been in business since 1816, so they've been around a long, long time. 
Um, and anyway, fruit trees, that's what's so interesting to me about the background of southern Missouri um, is the tomato p- factories and the fruit factories um, and the fruit orchards. Um, I mean, I being a real estate agent, United Country has been in business since 1925. And in 1928, they did the first ever catalog of listings in the area or in the state of Missouri and northern Arkansas. And it's dominated the listings in, in our area, Wright County and Webster County, are just dominated with uh, information about fruit trees. And so it was greatly popular. Um, and that was what a lot of the business was. But the Great Depression, the kind of the, the, well, the drought of the 1930s killed a lot of them. It, when, in those days, people had to depend upon their land more. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't – they didn't just go to the grocery store and buy everything. Yeah. They're, they couldn't afford that. You had to do everything you could on your land, and that's why you, you planted so many different crops. You had so many – I mean, we've heard Dad talk about they had pigs on the farm. They had goats. They had turkeys. They had all kinds of stuff, and it was – you raised all kinds of diversity where – Honestly, in this day, you see a lot of this where we ought to take a, a page out of their book and, and and learn to diversify on our farms more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the, in the 1928 listings, there's a couple listings right there less than 10 miles from our farm. And, and every one of the listings mentions fruit trees. Um, a big thing in the area was the creamery in the town of Mansfield where a lot of people took their milk and had cheese and other things made. Um, and I guess they sold the milk there, uh, talked about how many milk cows you could carry or how many milk cows sold with the farm, um, then chickens. Uh, you can definitely tell there's a very, uh, a very um, large amount of different species on the farms um, to when where you we, can tell I'm they sure can. Go ahead. I'm sure you've heard Grandpa tell the stories of of taking wheat and corn to have it ground there at Bryant Creek at the spring. Yeah. What's now the fish hatchery. That's right. People would would ride horses or take stuff over, would take corn and and wheat and have them ground. Yep. That they would grow on their place and harvest them and take them there. Yep. And uh, so basically there was all kinds of stuff going on, and our farm is no different. Um you worked the land, you lived off the land, um, but you also, I, I, I'm sure back in those days, a thousand fruit trees was a lot of money. Um, and and not only was it a lot of money, but it was a great investment because you could plant those fruit trees and then harvest all those all the fruit every single year, hopefully, and take that to town or sell it and, and make some money. Um, and so it was interesting. 1892, he sold that farm. And, uh, and nine, I guess... F- what was that? Sixty years later, um, in 1952, our gra- our grandpa actually grandpa bought it back, and uh, and then expanded upon that. And I, if it was 80 acres, I believe it was, uh, is now turned into 275, give or take. And uh, so just kind of built it into the f- the farm it is as we know it today. Um, well, I was trying to remember. Do you remember how much? Grandma says they paid for the front was, piece. No, I think oh, it, I, I thought it was like five hundred dollars or four hundred. Yeah, that's the one that blows my mind when she yeah. tells me how much they paid for the front piece. It's like, boy, it's too bad land prices aren't like that right now for us. 
Yep, no doubt. I'd buy the whole county if it was that price. <laughs> um, you know what they say, you don't want to own the land that – you don't want to own all the land, just the land that touches yours. Yep. And uh, so kind of an interesting story for us. The Stark brothers bought it, and, of course, it left the Keith family. It ended up switching – numerous times in that 60 years and at one point the u.s government owned it um and then it went back to grand grandpa and grandma in 1952 and i believe that's the year they got married or or shortly after and moved built a house right there on the farm and that's that's the cabin today um it's been around a long long time and that's really kind of now fast forwarding that's that's where the story for us the connection really happens uh we grew up eight miles away in town, but every single weekend, it seemed like, and multiple times uh, during the week, if we could, we went to the family farm with dad. Um, it was every Saturday morning, you woke up and ate fried eggs and fried potatoes and then <laughs> watched gun smoke and headed to the farm. That's right. And a uh, lot, a lot of stories with the farm. Of course, the farm is, uh, like I said, 275 acres, mostly uh, I don't know, kind of, it's it's kind of mixed, if you want to say 50%, it may be 60-40, but open ground to timber ground, um, but really, if you look at the soil site and, and the ecological history, it's, it's, uh, it's woodland, upland, woodland, so understanding that landscape is really kind of, uh, it should be kind of a mix of open ground to wooded, going to more forest in the bottom ground, but um, a lot of native grasses, wildflowers, historically speaking, to uh, big blackjack trees, post oak trees, few white oaks, and and on down in the valleys of forest, and and uh, it's really not too far from that, from a grand scheme of things. If you look at the bones of the property, but uh, a lot of a lot more non-native cool season grass in the form of orchard grass and fescue, and then you got your legumes of the clover. Um, Chad, what, do you, what yeah, I mean, are your thoughts on that? You, I mean, it's it's one of those we always talk about the wolfy trees, and it's it's one where you can walk through a lot of the timber that's now solid timber, that there's still those big wolfy post oaks that you're like that tree's been here a long time. I would like to see what this looked like when it was when this tree was even 20 years old, just to see because you know a lot of that trees don't get wolfy with with a lot of competition. I mean, you and I were talking about this today in the tree stand, looking at trees and how they were self-pruning. Yes. Um, and by self-pruning, we mean a lot of people that have been around fruit trees know of pruning fruit trees where you go in and you basically cut the limbs that aren't going to be very good or could possibly harm the tree. Um, and by very good, I mean not going to produce a lot of fruit. And if it does, it's going to weight that limb down to where if it could break and open that uh, tree up for disease and and other um, harmful infections, if you will, and uh, you see these lower level limbs in the hardwoods um, dying, and it's and basically it's, it's a lot of time it's in trees that have that are very tightly packed. There's a, yes. a high if you're in high pine, stocking rate. If you're in pine country, you know this because uh, it forces those trees to grow straight and not have a lot of limbs causing knots in the lower levels so you get higher value in, in your timber. But in oak trees, they can do the same thing, but it's overall it's not healthy for the tree um, because it's focused so much on upward growth. It's not making as many um, 
reproductive acorns basically so there's not as much food for the for the animals um and they're not well it's it's not bad in young actively (laughs) growing trees but it's it's when they've when they've completely canopied out and grown as tall as they're going to grow you start that's when you see the trees that are in the overstory they will self prune and then the trees that are not in the overstory they just die off that's right and so that's when you get into the harmful effects of what's the long term um health of this forest going to be but since this I, is a this this is a not the habitat podcast we won't spend too much time on that but um that's really kind of what we've seen transform on the family farm what was once the premier, and, and we've heard our family talk about it for years, but the premier quail habitat and hunting that, that occurred in the area to now, it's very little quail. Um, fewer deer than there used to be, and uh, there's probably a few more turkeys just because they can tolerate the, the effects of cattle farming. But overall, the quail population has plummeted, and as well as woodcocks and all the other upland species. Well, that's what's crazy to me. There's there is a neighbor, a neighboring farm close that Dad talks about. Used to be pretty open, like scattered post oaks and open and grassy. Yeah. And now you drive by and it's solid timber, like yeah. complete closed canopy, leaves underneath. Yep. And, and and a lot of the neighborhood calls what used to be abundant in this area's wild wild pasture. They'd call it. Which yeah. was basically native, the native landscape, the native wild, the native warm season grasses, native cool season grasses, um, and then of course the native forbs, and so huge changes have occurred as far as the specific type of vegetation growing there, but it's not too far removed. Um, a mix of short leaf pines scattered through the landscape, um, which are native to the area, um, but it really. To me, the farm is what shaped, really shaped the passion that I have today, and as well as you, Chad. Um, and I know that's true for Matt as well with his family farm. Is um, as a child, I, I feel like that's why it's important to really try to, if you want your kids to be kind of nature lovers or outdoorsy, you've got to find those ways to introduce them at a young stage before it's too late. Um, and it's and it's not even. It's it's introducing them to nature, not hunting, not hunting specifically. Yeah, nature it's in just, general. and it's it's crazy to think of the people our age that that can't identify trees, and yeah. that was something that I thought of as fundamental. Just with dad, I mean, you went on the farm, and that was something that you just he taught us. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely a, a good point because. Um, you may ask, like, where did our passion come from, or how did we... I get asked that question all the time, because I'm not a forester, I'm not a certified wildlife biologist, but I know a lot of an, or I know a lot of animal, um, basically information as well as plants, plant species, um, and tree species, like, um, because the fact that when we were growing up, Dad just constantly was hounding us, hey, what is that? What is this? What's the name of that? And well, it's, uh, it's something I run into, in which you've talked about it before, but I work for the Forest Service. And it's something that I run into with people I work with that 
I'll have a biologist that they they specialized in fisheries and they know fishes like crazy but then when it comes to a lot of plants they're like fishes ah, just, or fishies fishies fishes <laughs> they know their fish they know their fish really well yeah but when it comes to plants and stuff they're like eh, i don't really know and it's like i've got a we both have a very a, a really good grasp of at least common names of plants animals fish we and it's something we've just been taught through our lifetime as kids because of the farm yes if it wasn't for the farm who knows what we'd be ups driver or, um a, a school teacher um but there was something about that farm which really fed the fire of the obsession with land um and and I mean, you went and studied wildlife management. I went and studied agriculture, but it all came back to the fundamental of we got obsessed with land at a very young age because we had access to the farm. Yep. Yeah. And what, spent what, countless hours just walking around the farm. That's why when people ask me, "Boy, if some, uh, what's your dream farm? Where, where's your dream farm? Where, where do you hope to buy land one day?" And I always say, realistically, I just want to expand on what we have. Um, I love the land prices compared to the country, the rest of the country. When you look at Southern Missouri, um, it's hard to, it's hard to beat that, but you can never put a price tag on, um, the heritage that's involved with the family farm. Yep. Is it, what do you think, uh, do you find it interesting to think about the family farm as like, picturing yourself looking at old photos and seeing like man i'm on the same piece of ground as corny as it sounds we're on the same dirt that great grandpa was on that dad was a kid on um well, like it, you it, know you and i've both looked through pictures of some of those old pictures of the farm like the front gate and yeah. like the the pines across the road that dad planted and now they're mature pine trees with a ton of pine seedlings that need thin, but it's that was a piece of land that, that <laughs> grandpa used to own and sold off. Yep. And you're like, boy, I'd like to go in there and thin those pines and see what it actually turns into and not just be just dog hair stacked thick. in pine yeah. seedlings. Yep. For sure. I, I find it like, and there's certain things that, that our grandpa did that, I know we would have struggled with seeing if we were both trying to manage at the same time. Um, for instance, he he had a major uh, white oak allergy when white oak trees were um, pollinating in the spring. He had major allergies because of that, and therefore, when he cut firewood, he really tried to focus on cutting out white oaks. Oh, that's what I I remember planting those. <laughs> I had those. I don't remember where I got them. We had extras or something. I had some white oak seedlings from the MDC nursery, and which it's Missouri Department of Conservation has a has a state nursery that you can buy seedlings really cheap. Yeah, and Tennessee, I think New Hampshire or Maryland has one as well. It's a, a lot of state It's a great program. Seven. Yep. But I had oak, some white oak seedlings, and I was going and planting them. And your dad and and our dad was just like, "Yeah, your grandpa would." Roll over in his grave if you knew you guys were planting white oak trees. <laughs> yeah. 
He's like, he couldn't stand them. I'm like, really? Why? He's like, the pollen. He didn't like the pollen. It bothered him really bad. It's like, huh. Yep. I'd... And, and you know, in the same sense, even just in, in our lifetime, there are things that we did when we first started working on the farm that we would kick ourselves now. Oh, for knowing sure. Knowing what we did, what yes. we were trying to do, what we thought we were doing good. Plowing and disking. Is one of and, the biggest and, ones that and comes even, to mind. And even as far as I would love to have taken tree measurements Yep. before we ever started cutting TSI. Yep. Because there's places that I can look at the trees and say, it's done a lot of good, but we lost a lot of great information that we could have had just yes. in managing that timber. That's right. That's right. I, I think maybe that's motivational motivation to other people that are currently doing stuff on their farm that don't live by our mistake and not, not take notes of the stuff that's changing and that you're doing on the farm because who knows? It's, and, and another big thing, taking pictures. Um, I, oh, would, I, I, I wish we'd have taken so many pictures back in the day of what, what the landscape looks like when we were kids versus now, and especially as we start to revamp and do a lot of stuff. We go into more of a rotational grazing type of management. Um, we go into um, all kinds of different types of things that we're doing on the farm. Um, I would. Lo- we- it's going to be crucial for us to to take the know, notes. And uh, take honestly, pictures. in the in those days, it was not as easy as it is now because now <laughs> it's we go to cut and I automatically pull my cell phone out and take pictures. Yeah. At that time, that w- that wasn't an option. No. No. I mean, we might have had cell phones, but they didn't have no, the didn't quality have of camera phones, that they have now. No. I didn't have a cell phone until I was 18 years old. So it, was, it wasn't it was as easily done to just go out and take pictures of everything before we go and cut it. That's right. And uh, also, it was just, uh, I mean, you think about it. Even trail cameras, going to the hunting, we used to take our get our... 36 photos and take it a one hour development and get it back and have three good pictures. Um, it just, <laughs> it's changed a lot. Um, yes. And, and I, and I'm really like, to me, there's so much sentimental value. I'm a very sentimental guy anyway, but there's so much, uh, there's so much to be said about managing and living on the, or hopefully one day living on the same farm that our ancestors lived on. Um, and and to me that all goes that's not downplaying or bashing anybody that's out there moving around and flipping farms and having a good time doing that but there is a power into looking at what you're improving as the same thing your grandpa or your great grandpa worked to improve uh when he was on this earth um and that really goes with our company name of land and legacy is it's kind of a motivational and inspiring thing to think about the the magnitude of what you're doing um and how that really is just kind of it's something powerful it's something it's 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 good for the soul to think about of the amount of um influence you're having on on just wonderful gift of land yeah to to go in and you know it's it's one that you're not only you're you're hoping to do something that's not only benefiting you but it's benefiting generations to come I mean, a, a lot of work that you're doing, and 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 hopefully, like, your guys's reach through the podcasts and and videos to be able to hopefully inspire more people 
to want to do work on their land to improve it for generations to come. That's right. That's right. And I think that's a good, uh, a good time to wrap it up. Um, we've been here about 30 minutes and it's a little shorter this week just because of the lack of interviews with, uh, agents. Um, but we'll be right back at it full swing next week with our three more podcasts coming out. And, uh, I know uh, Matt and I have a busy, busy spring ahead of us and late winter. I guess you say spring anytime you look at For me, it's always, oh, the spring schedule, which starts in January, February, March. Um, but we definitely have a, uh, oh, we have a busy workload, so we're going to have a lot of great content coming out. So make sure you subscribe to our channel on iTunes and uh, check everything out, like our pages, and uh, follow along. And, Chad, appreciate you joining us once again and uh good to be back and i'm sure it won't be the last with your guys's busy schedules that's right that's right so anyway hopefully you guys enjoyed it we'll catch you next week